0: Amen, amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In essence, what he was saying is, follow me as I follow Jesus. And that very simple phrase, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Speaks to the power of an example. Spurgeon once said this He said, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and his doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers will accept his practice and reject his preaching. The power of an example. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Last Sunday, we, uh, we examined Paul's seven-verse greeting to the believers in Rome. And in particular, we looked at verses 2 through 6, where Paul weaves all kinds of important theological statements into his standard greeting. We heard Paul describe the great calling that he had received from the Lord, that he was set apart for this marvelous thing we call the gospel, and last week we started to find that in a nutshell. The gospel is the good news that God has provided a remedy for man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that true? That is our greatest need. That is our greatest problem and our greatest need, and God has made provision for it. Amen and amen and we heard Paul argue in verses 2 through 6 that the gospel is not, not something that he made up it's not from him it's nothing innovative it's not that he came up with some new idea or some new twist on Judaism in fact he says this gospel that he set apart for was promised long ago in the Hebrew scriptures and it's rooted in the person of Christ who is Israel's messiah so he's drawing a line of continuity between the old testament and his words to the Romans. And so it's through him, Jesus Christ, and Paul calls him our Lord, that Paul himself has received the grace to be an apostle, to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles all over the ancient world. So today we're going to dive into verses 8 to 15, and, and just a few summary statements before we, uh, before we jump into this. People have looked at this section, again, verses 8 to 15, and they have sort of deemed it less than consequential. And we have a tendency to do this at the beginning of many of the epistles, to sort of overlook these opening statements. And part of the the temptation is, as we get to verses 16 and 17, they are so important. In fact, a lot of people believe that those two verses really encapsulate the entire theme of the book of Romans. So we're anticipating 16 and 17, but first come 8 through 15, and oftentimes they get lost in the shuffle. This section of Scripture is more about historical details than it is really deep theology, but it's very, very practical. Simple truths, for sure, but profound as well. And what I hope you'll see this morning as we go through them is that these verses have much to tell us about who Paul was, about his heart for ministry, about his passion for the gospel, and his love for people. And that's something we don't often think about with Paul. We think about this guy that just flew across the Mediterranean world, planting churches and moving on, but he has a great love and a passion for people. Many things in here that we can imitate as Paul follows Christ. In fact, at the end of each section today, as we go through the major points of these verses, I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask some pretty pointed questions. And so like a a good head coach who wants to push you harder and harder, I'm going to ask some really hard questions and give you a chance to really consider those things. And by the way, these are questions that I considered in my own life before I got up here today in my own preparation. So we're going to get challenged in a very practical way today. So let's, in fact, let's back up to verse 7 real quick, and we'll just, we'll catch the tail end of his greeting, and then we'll go on to read 8 through 15. Verse 7 says this, to all who are beloved of God in what city? In Rome, called as saints, that is holy ones, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at least by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, normally we would go through this passage and we dis- we'd dissect it from top to bottom, starting in verse 8 and going down through verse 15, but I'm going I'm to throw a little bit of a loop in, in here today. I want you to actually look, first of all, at the last two verses, verses 14 and 15. And I want you to see the key phrase. I'll put it on the screen. The key phrase here is in verse 14. It says, Under obligation. Under obligation. The root of that word in the Greek, aphilo, means to owe or to be in debt. To owe or to be in debt. I am under obligation, Paul writes, or I am in debt to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So what's happening here? Not only is Paul the deliverer of the gospel, and we saw that in the first seven verses, but here he says that he's also under an obligation or a debt related to the gospel. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, there's an old hymn that really describes this uh, perfectly, and I I dug this out of the, the deep charts of my hymn book. Here's what it says. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long, Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Folks, that's the good news of the gospel right there. That, that is the core of it, right? A debt we could never pay, never, that's been completely taken away, paid for by another. And in a case that's too that's of a, a metaphysical concept to understand, Put it in really human terms. Let's just say you got a tax bill from the IRS. And it was a billion dollars. You owed our government a billion dollars. And all you had was a lifetime on earth to pay it off. Imagine living under the weight of that debt. Every day, every moment, this debt is just... Hovering over you, there is no way you can pay it off. And then one day some stranger walks into the office of the IRS and he says, bam, here's a billion dollars, I'm paying it for him. And that doesn't even touch, right, the eternal weight of our sins. But it gives you an idea of what that would feel like. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. So God has paid off this debt for our sin, now what? Certainly we can never repay God, right? There's no way we can work and work and work. No way we could repay God. And we know that his ransom payment was a free gift by his grace. That it was not a wage that we earned in any way. And yet, Paul's talking about being a debtor here. Once we've been ransomed, the question is, do we not have an obligation? Paul says yes, in verse 14. As one who has heard and been redeemed by the message of the gospel, I am now under obligation to be an ambassador for Christ, to share that same good news by which I was saved with every person across the world. Paul says, I'm a debtor now. I'm under obligation to everyone. And by the way, that's not just in word, but in deed, right? In the things that we say, in the way that we live, we are under obligation because of the great things that God has done for us. It's really a simple truth, isn't it? I mean, Don't we hear that as soon as we get saved? Well, now we have an obligation, right, to go out there and share the gospel. We've heard that. It's a simple truth, and yet how often do we actually do it? How easily have we forgotten that day-to-day, busy life, right? We forget. We're coming into contact with people all the time. Are we shining that light? Are we preaching the gospel both by our lives and with our words? We forget about it. We figure other people will do it, right? I've got other things to do, other things to focus. I'm busy. My social media account, my, my, you know, my pictures. I've got, I've got to stay up to date. Someone will do it. Paul tells the believers in Rome that as a man bought by the blood of Christ, he is now under obligation to the entire Gentile world. Think about that. That's a, that's a big region. We talk about being an ambassador for Christ in Santa Clarita. Paul says, every place across the Gentile world. Both the Greeks and the barbarians, he says. Now, today, if you call somebody a barbarian, that would be pretty offensive. Try it next time you're at Starbucks or something. Call somebody a barbarian and see what the reaction is. But you have to understand, in the first century context, this is the way the so-called civilized world saw things. There were, there were Greeks, and then there were non-Greeks. If you were Greek or you were Roman, you were part of this civilized world. You were, you, were, uh, uh, you know, You were cultured. If you weren't, you were a pagan, and you were outside the Greek and the Roman world. You didn't speak Greek. You didn't engage in Greek culture. You were a barbarian. Greeks and Romans, wise. Pagan barbarians, fools. But notice, either way, Paul's an equal opportunity evangelist. He says he's under under obligation to everybody. He's not going to pick and choose. Well, I only like cultured people. No, both groups, he says. And just to show you the emphasis in his words, when he says, I am under obligation, that verb is in the present tense, which means he says, I am always, always by my words and by my life at all times, I am repaying a debt that I owe. An obligation to the gospel at all times, every moment. And don't you, when you think about Paul and you see the way he operates in the New Testament, don't you believe him when he says that? At all times. Do you think Paul ever took a day off? He woke up and said, eh, the gospel. Eh, I'll take a day off. I don't think so. This was his passion. This is what he did each and every day. What drives a man like Paul to see the world this clearly and to devote his whole life to such a radical mission? And I think the answer is as I was praying about this this week, it's his gratitude. His gratitude to God. For his life, for his very life, that's what drove him. And we should follow his example in this, guys. Listen, Paul is acutely aware of his sins in the past, right? Responsible for the death of Christians, right? Do you think Paul ever forgot that? I mean, he must have known it was paid for, but did he ever forget? No, I think he's acutely aware of his past sins. He's constantly mindful of how much he's been forgiven. Imitate him in that, friends. What does your life look like before you met Christ? Are you aware of your sins? Look, they're paid for. They don't have to weigh on you as a guilt and shame. But do we forget? No. We look back and we praise the Lord and we worship him. That those things have been taken away. Buried in the deepest parts of the seas, right? As far as the east from the west. But we don't forget. We don't forget. Follow his example in this. This brought Paul to a place of immense gratitude and worship. And that gratitude, by the way, it's not just a feeling, it comes out in us practically. If we're truly grateful for what God has done in our life, it's going to be played out every day in our thinking and our, our feelings and our emotions and our decisions and our choices in every aspect of life. Paul says to the Corinthians, "Woe to me, Great Old Testament saying. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's how committed he was. Evangelizing the Gentile world was not a matter of choice for Paul. It wasn't some type of ambition that he had to be the, the, the best and the greatest apostle. He was under compulsion, he said. He felt compelled to fulfill this calling that God had given him. Why? Because of his gratitude for what God had done for him. So step back now. What about you? What about me? Have we felt the weight of this obligation? How aware are you of the sins that God has washed away in your life, paid for in full? How aware are you? Does it make a difference in your day-to-day decisions? How does it practically show up in your life, your gratitude for the gospel, for your sins being taken away? If not, why not? Is this something you need to understand more about the gospel, about what Christ has done for you? If there's any question that you can ponder after church today, that would be it. That's the one I would want you to ponder. Do I sense an obligation to the gospel in the same way that Paul is talking about here? Because of what Christ has done for you. Because of your gratefulness. As we go back to the top of our text for this morning now, there's three other things in this text that we can imitate Paul in, in his obligation to the gospel. Look back at verse 8. The first thing you're going to notice here is that Paul is thankful for others who, like him, are living faithfully as debtors. The believers in Rome also understood this obligation. They were like Paul, and so Paul was thankful for them. Look at verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What does it mean to be thankful? It seems like a silly question, right? In English, we sort of throw that word around easily. Well, I'm thankful. But in the Greek, eucharisteo has a very specific meaning. If you were to break that, it's a compound word. If you were to break it up, it means good grace. That's what it means to be thankful. To truly be thankful. To understand the good grace that God has shown you. The unmerited favor that he has poured out upon you. You didn't deserve it. It's a free gift by his grace. He poured it out. You've received his good grace. Think about your story. Think about how Christ came to you. I remember my story. When God drew me to himself. When he opened the eyes of my heart. For the first time I I could see him. I could suddenly understand the gospel and everything looked brand new to me and I I trusted in him and I submitted my life to him. I remember that story. Do you? I received the good grace of God one day back in 1984 when he saved me. And it overwhelms me. And I became a truly thankful person that day because I finally understood who I was in relation to God. And I finally understood who he was and what, what, he, what he not only did for me, but how much he longed to be with me, how much he longed to have a relationship with, with me. I was thankful. Good grace. And so now Paul hears about others in the city of Rome, halfway across the world. They're united in Christ with him. They are fellow recipients of God's good grace, debtors because of the gospel. And how does he respond? Thankful praise. I thank my God for you, he says. Notice what Paul doesn't say in verse 8. He doesn't say, Hey, your gifted preacher is being proclaimed all across the world. Or your killer worship team. The news is spread about how great your worship team is. Unless I miss something, right? It's not there. You look how fast your church is growing. It's being proclaimed throughout the world. He doesn't say all your your edgy, cutting-edge programs are being proclaimed throughout the world. Or your beautiful building. That's what's being proclaimed throughout the world. None of those things, right? He doesn't say any of those things. Those are the types of things we say today when we talk about a successful church. But Paul's view of success has a very laser focus to it. What is it? Faithful living. I hear that your church has people in it who are living faithfully. If you want a mark for success in the church, there's your answer. It's not how big. It's not how your building looks. Is your congregation living faithfully? Is it a healthy church? He says the faithful living of these Roman believers is known all around the world. It's being reported everywhere. Now remember, Paul didn't plant this church, did he? We talked about that in the first week. He doesn't have pastoral responsibility here. In fact, at this point, he's never been to Rome. But we're going to find out when we get to the very last chapter of the book, chapter 16, that he knows a ton of people that are in that church, including Priscilla and Aquila and others. And he must have gotten reports from them saying, Hey, look, these people are standing firm in the faith, in the midst of the most perverted culture the world has ever known, in the very city of Rome, a cesspool morally. But they're standing firm. They're living out their faith. As bad as it is here in America, folks, we have no idea what it must have been like to be a Christian in Rome in the first century. I mean, we complain a lot, right? It's nothing compared to what they dealt with. Romans saw Christians as, and this is a quote from uh, an ancient manuscript, as the enemies of the human race, that's all. Dangerous people. Dangerous people. And as we know from history, that they're often persecuted by the imperial government. They were bad people. And yet, these believers in this church were standing firm. The fact that this church existed there in the heart of the pagan world was quite remarkable. No doubt, because of the fact it was there, because of the fact that it was such a high-profile city, that word of their faithful living had spread all across the world, and Paul was so thankful for it. By the way, some people have said, notice how Paul isn't jealous either. Somebody else planted this church. You think Paul's like, oh, shoot, I didn't get a part of that. I don't get to share in that glory in Rome. No, he's thankful. Thankful for the faithfulness of these, of these people. So, step back for a second. Question for you. What do people say about this church? As you're going through your, your day, at school, at work, whatever, Starbucks, What do people say about Oak Hill? Would they recognize our faithfulness as a church? And I ask that question because we all have a part in that, don't we? It's not me as the pastor. I mean, I'm a part of it. I'm just one part, or the elder team, or the ministry leaders. It's all of us. We all have a responsibility and a testimony in this community, in this culture, do we not? What's our reputation? Are we faithful? How about this? When you hear about other churches that are filled with faithful and true bondservants of Christ, do you praise God for that? Are you thankful for that? As Paul was thankful for the believers in Rome. We should be praising God. When we hear about other churches in this valley or beyond that are preaching the gospel, the true gospel, that they're living faithfully, man, we should praise God for that. We should be praying for them, should we not? It's bigger than this room, isn't it? It's bigger than this one church. I love Paul's attitude for Rome. Second thing we see in our passage that we can imitate Paul in is the way he prays. The way he prays for other people who likewise are under obligation to the gospel. Look at verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness. God is my witness, he says, as to how unceasingly I make mention of you Romans. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Here's what struck me as I was looking at that that passage. How do we tend to pray as Christians today? We, we tend to pray after the fact. Well, what I would say I would call reactively. Something bad happens, and we all go to prayer, right? And that's good, by the way. We should do that. We should be praying as, as rough things are happening or trials are happening. We should go to prayer for one another. That's a good thing. But here we see in verse 9, Paul's saying we can pray proactively as well before bad things happen, right? When you know someone who's under obligation to the gospel as you are, and you thank God for them for their faithful life, that's the time to put them on your prayer list, not when something bad happens. Put them on your prayer list. How much of your prayer life is selfish? Oh, Lord, bless me. <laughs> or, oh, Lord, take care of my family. And, and again, we should be praying those things, right? If you don't ask, you will not have, is what James tells us. So it's okay. It's good to be praying for, for yourself. Are you praying for others? Are you praying for others? Mm-hmm. Do you know that commitment number four on our church covenant says this? We will not neglect to pray for ourselves and for one another. That's really important to our church. Here in verse 9 and 10, Paul's essentially saying this to the believers. He's saying, I can't stop praying for you. I think about you, I can't stop. Every time I hear about how you're walking in faith, I am drawn to the throne of grace to come and to intercede for you. Not because I've heard something bad has happened, but because I want to come to the throne proactively and ask the Lord to continue to strengthen you in your faithful walk. Does that make sense? He said the same thing to the Thessalonian church. He said this, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the believers in in Thessalonica, were also under obligation to the gospel. They were fellow debtors with Paul, and so Paul prays for them passionately and unceasingly. And when we look, guys, if you look at the, the breadth of Paul's life in the book of Acts and throughout his letters, this is the habit of his life, unceasing prayer. It hit me as I was reading this. Can you imagine how big Paul's prayer list must have been? I mean, do you guys have a written prayer list or a journal or something I do, and it it gets bigger. It's just constantly getting bigger, right? Imagine Paul's prayer list. All of the churches that he's planted, all of the people that he's met along the way, he's even praying for people he doesn't know, praying for churches like Rome where he didn't plant. His prayer list must have been absolutely huge. How much time do you think Paul set aside for prayer each day? I've heard people say this was the invisible power of his ministry, was prayer. How often do we skip right over that? And I'm preaching to myself as well. Oh, I'm so busy. I've got so much ministry to do. I don't have time to pray. Do you hear how crazy that sounds? I've got so many things to do. I don't have time to pray. That, for a believer, that's crazy. We need to put that first. If you're truly grateful to God for your salvation... Truly grateful that others are being saved and walking in faith, you will find yourself praying for them. So, questions. Are you thankful? And are you prayerful for your brothers and sisters in this local church? Is that a habit of your life to be praying for the people in this room? Go ahead and look around. Are you thankful? that many are walking in faith? Are you prayerful for them? Members. Members. Every month we talk about it. You have a membership directory that we give you, right? How many of you are going through that directory and praying for your fellow members? How can you and I take steps practically to grow in this? Is there anybody that would ever sit there and say, yeah, you know what, I pray plenty. Or, you know, I, maybe a little too much. I just, I just pray a lot. Don't we all sort of feel inadequate in this? That we all ought to set aside more time to present a request to God, to ask Him to guide us, to go before us, before we just launch out on our own, in our own strength? Third thing, last thing that we learn from Paul here. When when you're a debtor, you're eager for fellowship with other debtors. When you're under the obligation of the gospel, you are convicted that you've been saved and redeemed. And that because of that, you're a debtor and you've got to share. You want to be with other people that are like you. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. It's obvious as you read this section. Paul really wants to get to Rome. He really he says he longs to see the Romans. And the word there means to strain. He, he's straining to get there. But so far he's been prohibited from going. But it's on his heart. Now, I explained a couple weeks ago that Paul's Big reason why he wants to get to Rome is because he has a vision to get even further west to Spain, right? To, to find territory that's not heard the gospel. And he wants to enlist the Roman church as part of his support network to get him to Spain. But I want you to see in this, it's more than that. It's not just that, hey, you're a resource for me. The passion in his words come out. He wants to be with these people. Is, is that your heart? You just, you long, you strain to be with other believers because you love sweet fellowship. In a very genuine way, Paul can't wait to see these folks. In fact, fact, Paul loves to hang out with faithful believers. When you hang out with a whole bunch of people that have that common Love for Christ, there is no sweeter fellowship. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I don't know about you, but these times are most vivid for me and most profound for me when we gather in our member meetings on Sunday nights. And we're stuck in a, you know, a lot of people in a small room and we're singing and we're talking about living life together and we're coming to the communion table. There's a powerful draw in that. There's this idea that this whole room of people, we're all rowing in the same direction. We're on the same team. We want the same things. We're all under obligation to the gospel. And there's nothing better. It's just sweet fellowship. And that's what Paul longs for. Now, there's sort of three sub points to this in verses 11 and 12. I want you to see them here. First of all, Paul says he wants wants to impart some type of spiritual gift when he comes. That should be our heart. Hey, when I come, I want to be useful. When I see you, when we get together, I don't want to just be a blob sitting in a chair. I don't want to just take. I want to be useful. I want to bring some spiritual gift to the party. Now, what gift was he talking about? My guess is he would... Paul was just talking about, when I get there, I'll find out what the need is, and I'll impart a spiritual gift, probably teaching, right? That's what Paul did best. Maybe just words of wisdom or practical instruction about how to organize the church, whatever it might be. Paul says, I want to bring something usable, something that's going to bless you. Secondly, he says, I want to help to establish you. End of verse 11, that you may be established. The Greek verb there, sterizo, It was used in the ancient Greek to talk about stabilizing something, building a building and stabilizing it, putting it firmly in place. Paul says, I want to come, I want to visit your church, and I want to make sure it's stable, it's secure, and it's firmly planted. That was a big part of Paul's ministry. I know the ESV, the NIV say, strengthen, that your roots would be firmly established And this is one of those things we sometimes forget about Paul again. Yes, he's a great evangelist, but he was a discipler as well. It wasn't like, I plant churches and I take off, and hey, best of luck to you guys. No, he constantly comes back to his churches, doesn't he? Constantly writes letters back to them. Constantly prays for them. He's a discipler as well. He wants to see these churches not just get planted, but flourish and grow to maturity. So he wants to stabilize and establish the people in the church at Rome. And lastly... He wants to encourage them. Mutual encouragement, in fact. Verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you, each of us by the other's faith. This is what I love. Okay, Paul is the apostle. He could probably walk in. Now remember, he didn't plant the church, so he doesn't have that responsibility. Still, he's an apostle of Christ. He could come in with all kinds of authority and lord it over them, but what does he say? Look, I wanna come, I wanna give, but I also want to receive from you. I want to give, but I also want to receive. Sometimes we forget that Paul was a human being, right? He's not Superman. He got discouraged. He needed to come to other churches and be encouraged. Church leaders always need encouragement, folks, always, because they're always under attack. They're always being pressed in on every side, and Paul was no different he needed to be encouraged. The word here and this is for my my Greek geeks out there in the audience, sumpara kaleo. Right? It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament and it means to come alongside to comfort one another. Paul says, "When I get there, I want to be comforted by you and I want to bring you some comfort." To give and to receive. All those under obligation to the gospel bring comfort to like-minded saints. They come and they encourage hearts. They speak words of life to one another. My faith should encourage your faith and your faith should encourage my faith. And by the way, leaders need to be humble enough to say, "I, I need that, I need encouragement, and to receive it well from their congregations. That's important as well. Guys, this is part of why we gather on Sunday mornings and why we gather during the weeks in community groups. These assemblies matter, We can be together and we can impart spiritual gifts to each other. And we can establish one another, strengthen each other's faith, and we can give mutual encouragement. This is why in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, this very famous statement says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's a big part of why we gather, right? Look, we want to stimulate each other to love and to good works. That's what we do. It's It's an iron sharpening iron thing, an accountability thing. Hey, how's your love? How are your good deeds? Ask me as well. But he goes on, he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, not blowing off church, not skipping community group, but encouraging one another, Hebrew says. And all the more as you see the day is drawing near. Isn't that true? As the day gets near and our culture continues to spiral and things look bleaker, do we not need to gather for mutual encouragement? we do. So that's what we do here every Sunday. Understand, this isn't just a rote ritual that we participate in every week. The assembling of the saints is designed to be a supernatural assembly of debtors, people who are under obligation of the gospel to come together and to participate in these things, using our gifts, establishing each other, and mutually encouraging Is that how you see the gathering of the church? Be honest in your heart right now. Because I I find this often, and I I, I, I know I repeat myself often. My wife reminds me. But one of the biggest problems we have in the church today is we don't understand the purpose of the church. We've been fed all kinds of wrong things about the church, or we've developed our own idea of what the purpose of the church is. So we get to church and we're like, I don't know what this is about. Can I tell you? That this is not a rote ritual. We don't do this to check a box and say, look, God, I was in a building today. We do it for these reasons. So how do you see the gatherings of the church? Are they times of supernatural fellowship where the Spirit of God is knitting our hearts together as we encourage and strengthen each other? It, if you believe that that's true, how do you prepare to come to church on Saturday nights? Should we not be people of expectation as we come to church on Sunday? Lord, I expect today to be amazing. I expect to, to fellowship with other believers and to, to be strengthened and to encourage people and to serve. And Should that not excite us? If that's what we believe about assembling and gathering as a body, it should excite us. We should be living in anticipation. Do you long to be with your brothers and sisters? Is that, do you long, like he longs, like, do you strain excited to be with brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you contributing your spiritual gifts to this local church? Doing your part, as Paul wanted to do in Rome? Are you encouraging your leaders? so much to be done right be imitators of me as i am of christ paul said the power of an example paul lays out all as i said earlier these verses people think ah not that important let's get to verse 16 but there is so much practical church life stuff in there is isn't there not Tell a quick story. Back in the 1940s, there was a man named Will Hufton, and he was a preacher in Chicago, and eventually he became the president of Moody Bible Institute. And one day he came into contact with an agnostic who was so down and out, so desperate in his life that he was contemplating suicide. As desperate as he was, though, he decided he would put off suicide if he could find one spiritual leader in Chicago. Who lived his faith. So we hired a private detective, and he chose Will Hufton, the pastor of this church in Chicago. And when the report came back from the investigator, it said, you know what, the guy's not perfect, but he is the real deal. He is above reproach. And that agnostic man, this is a true story, that Sunday went to Will Hufton's church and months later gave his life to Christ. Not only that, years later sent his daughter to Moody Bible Institute. Not only was a life changed by an example, but a generation was changed because of an example. Today, folks, what we've seen in this text is the example that Paul sets for us. His heart, his ministry. He's under obligation to the gospel. A great debt has been lifted off of him by Christ, and now he says, I owe a debt. And I will give every bit of my life to the last breath under that debt until Christ calls me home. Is that our heart? Do you consider yourself under obligation to the gospel? If so, be thankful. Be thankful for your salvation. Be thankful for others who are walking faithfully. Pray. Pray unceasingly, constantly, fervently, both for yourselves and for others. Be eager for fellowship. Be eager to gather with your brothers and sisters so that you might bring a spiritual gift, so that you might strengthen someone, so that you might encourage another. Simple truths, right? I wrote down here Christianity 101. That's what that was. Simple truths, but profound truths, and not easy truths to live out. May we continue to encourage each other as the day draws near. Will you pray? Father, it's uh, mornings like this where I'm so grateful that you saved Paul and that you've given him to us to the church as an example. An example of his heart, of his ministry, of his love for others, of his prayer life. Father, I uh, I pray for us that we wouldn't be overwhelmed by that, that we wouldn't be intimidated by it, uh, that we would not feel like, oh, I fall so short of that standard, but Lord, that we'd be encouraged this morning to grow in these areas. And we know, God, that this growth comes because you do that work in us. So my prayer for us is that we would simply open up our hands to you and say, Lord, I'm convicted. Lord, I I do want to grow in these areas. Will you do that work in me? Lord, thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church. Thank you for the fellowship that we do have here, the the healthy church that you have established in this place. May we continue to encourage each other in the right direction. May we continue to fellowship together in a powerful way. Lord, all of it is because of you, not because of me, the elder team, anybody but you. So we give you the glory this morning. We thank you for this passage in Christ's name, amen.